This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time with us today. I am your host for today's pod, Bridget Smith. And joining me today is a special guest, Kira Koba. Kira is a principal at Allen Koba Compliance Solutions. She's a member of the MARC Executive Committee, co-chair of the Conditional Payment and Section 111 Committee for MSPN, and a former um, acting president for MSPN. Welcome, Kira. Thanks, Bridget. Happy to be here. Well, we appreciate you joining us, um, especially with your expertise on um, Section 111 and conditional payments. And we kind of wanted to delve in today into the happenings uh, with respect to Section 111. And probably one of the biggest things this year uh, was the the rule, uh, the proposed slash final rule on the civil monetary penalties and CMS extending that rule. What are your thoughts around you know, we know the reason they put it, but what are your thoughts around that extension of the rule? What do you think um, will develop from that? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a very good question. Um, the industry has been waiting for over 10 years to see what um, the agency will do from a regulatory standpoint to implement um, assessing civil monetary penalties for failure to do the Section 111 reporting correctly. And I think everyone sort of anxiously awaited that February date. Um, I also think that there was a lot of um, misconception about what that date really meant yeah. um, in terms of was that an actual like hard deadline where the regs just go away if that isn't hit. And um, it's good that I think that that's been clarified for everybody that it, it isn't. And I think that Mark in the industry generally and MSPN had a lot to do with educating and discussing with CMS agency officials and really anyone that would listen what we think are the potential issues that need to be handled and addressed before the final regs would come out. The proposed regulations had a lot of information in them, but there were still some gaps. And one of the biggest things that was a fear, I think for most responsible reporting entities that could be subject to these penalties was, are they gonna bankrupt them because they're so excessive in terms of the amount? So one of the biggest issues that um, was brought up to the agency and to OMB during their listening period and the comment period was the fact that they really needed to do an analysis and some predictive modeling to understand the economic impact of the rule and different insurance types. Um, And they listened and that's great and they're going to do it. And what I think most people hope will come from that is that there is an acknowledgement that this is an economically significant rule and there will be some common sense um, guidelines put into place to make sure that people are not unjustly penalized. And, you know, here's an example that I always 
bring up to CMS when they listen to me is for an illustrative purpose, imagine if you just failed to report as a responsible reporting entity 100 claims, okay, for a period of 90 days. And say you're a carrier that has 30,000 claims a year. 100 claims is not a lot. (laughs) So there's 100 mistakes out of your 30,000 claims. That proposed penalty could, I'm not saying it would, it's discretionary, but at almost $1,200 per day per claimant, um, that penalty could be $9 million. That's a lot. That's a lot. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we pointed this out over time that really the punishment needs to fit the crime. So let's look at what the mistakes are and how they're being made. Are they intentional? You know, there's really nothing in the current proposed reg that talks about the intent or good faith or steps that the carriers are taking to make sure things are done right. We all know that errors are going to be made on data when you're dealing with this much data. There's no humanly possible way that everything will be perfect unless you're maybe only reporting one claim a year and you make that one claim perfect. Um, But for most REs, that's just not realistic. So there needs to be, I think that this is very important. It's an important delay. I think it's going to take a while for them to unpack this. Um, And if this bill is to be classified as having the significant economic impact, it's going to need to go through all the different scrutiny that is required for that. Um, So really, I think it's a gift to responsible reporting entities to take a little bit more time and get serious about their compliance and their programs um, while CMS works out how they can um, rewrite this potentially and promulgate a regulation that's fair. Yeah, Kira, I, I couldn't agree more with you on, on everything you said. And, and when you said that, you know, the punishment fits the crime, I mean, if you think about the purpose of Section 111 reporting, which is to really gain the information to, for CMS to, to do a collection sweep to see if they have any conditional payments out there that need reimbursed, um, those conditional payments would not be anywhere near probably the amount of penalties that they would be recouping from, from RRE. So it, it really is um, such a, a different curve that we're talking about. So, you know, we could see we could see a, a lesser penalty amount, but you, you made a really good point that it is discretionary. So the $1,000 a day per day per claimant is discretionary. So if that could be you know, flushed out uh, a little bit more, I think that would be great. And um, you know, as far as the timeframe, do, do you think it'll take CMS the whole year? It might, right? I don't know. I do. I mean, I do. Yeah. I think economic analysis can take time. I think um, rewriting what they have is going to take time. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's unlikely that it'll take another year, Um, but may not. They don't have quite as much going on right now as they did um, during COVID. Thank God. Um, 
So maybe there'll be uh, more of a focus and more people available to really dig in and work on this. But it's really anyone's guess. I don't think it's a quick review, though. I think it's a serious review into the economic um, impact that this could have on our insurance industry. Yeah, I, I agree. And and you mentioned something about, you know, right now it's it it's a good time essentially for REs to get their their ducks in a row for for lack of a better term. What what are some things that they could do, REs could do to help with their reporting right now that you could suggest? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, I mean, the easiest thing that they could do is take a look at the top error reports. So CMS in February, the day before, actually, um, the day before they announced that they were extending the timeline to um, promulgate these final rules for CMPs, they issued a new chart or published a new chart titled Top 10 Section 111 Non-Group Health Plan Reporting Errors, covering the period of July 1 through December 31st of 2022. It's in the download section of their um, website on the CMS.gov website. And, you know, I'll just, I'll talk through a couple of highlights, but if you think about low-hanging fruit, okay, mm -hmm. easy ways to assess penalties. You think about this from the perspective of an auditor. The most logical thing for CMS to do is take a look at the error codes in which, which REs are exceeding the error tolerance thresholds. Now, you don't have any final rules to figure out what are the error tolerance thresholds gonna be? We don't know. We know what they proposed but we have no idea what they're actually going to be. So from a logical standpoint, you could take a look and see if you're hitting any of the proposed error thresholds. But more than anything, get your hands on a copy of your error reports. We talk to so many different REs that have TPAs involved with their reporting or their own internal IT department is responsible for the reporting. And you have leaders um, whether it's the VP of claims or the director of compliance, or depending on you know how you set up your business, they have no idea that you're even getting errors. So the easiest place to start would be start looking at what errors CMS is telling you you're making and make sure you don't make those. <laughs> now, those errors are typically technical errors. So the top 10 errors, according to CMS, uh, include invalid RE TIN, um, TPOC threshold errors, no beneficiary, um, a TPOC amount, alleged cause of injury errors, invalid TIN, uh, no fault limit errors, no auxiliary occurrence for delete, diagnostic code errors, and representative phone numbers um, that are missing. So, when you take a look at these, these are easy things to fix. These, if you're already submitting the data, you know, fix your errors. From there, you've got to dig into your program and yeah. go into your actual compliance errors. So there's your technical data errors. Those should be the easiest things to fix. They're going to be the things that put you on the radar first with CMS because they're the things they know about. What CMS and their auditors will not know about are the claims that you didn't report or 
They won't know that you sent them an incorrect TPOC date. They won't know that you sent them an incorrect TPOC amount. They won't know that you forgot to report ORM termination. Those are compliance issues. So those would be your next level. But get an audit. Um, yep. You know, and, and consider very seriously doing an independent audit as well. Um, because a lot of times, even, even professionals that believe that they're doing this right and they have this down, these rules came out over a decade ago and they've changed. And unless you are somebody that follows this industry closely on a daily basis, you've pro- you, it's possible that you've missed some changes or some updates. Right. Um, so audits aren't very expensive generally um, when you consider the cost of the potential penalties. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point, Kara, because <clears throat> I think there's, a, there's some confusion that if you're submitting to CMS, that if you're not getting anything back, everything's okay, right? And as you said, that, that um, subject matter basically, not the technical, but the substantive part of reporting is something that CMS won't, won't identify for you, but it impacts your conditional payments, it can impact penalties, and um, it's the, really the people part, right, of, yep. of the reporting. So um, an audit is a good tool for that. Um, an independent audit is also a good, great suggestion um, uh, for others to look at how, how you're reporting. So um, those are some, some great tips. But And I love the idea of the low-hanging fruit with the technical errors because those, you know, that's a problem that, that can be fixed. And, and um, you know, sometimes you don't see those. So it's really a lot about what you're saying is a lot about transparency, both in the substantive and, and the technical, which is really important. Yeah. So, okay. Um, now, uh, there's been some other changes this year and CMS came out with some user guides. And in one of the user guides, 7.0, uh, that came out January 9th of this year, CMS added a new functionality with the um, unsolicited response file. Can you and kind of explain to our listeners what what that entails from the from the guidebook. Absolutely. Um, okay, so actually pulling it up. So if you take a look at um, chapter four in the non-group health plan section one eleven reporting guide, um, they just recently updated the guide in February. And they added a section called seven, it's number 7.5, and it's a response file. It's called a non-group health plan unsolicited response file. And the information that was provided so far to the or to the industry is that, a, that as of July of 2023, no specific date, so you could assume July 1st, responsible reporting entities may opt in to receive a monthly non-group health plan unsolicited response file for non-group health plan ORM records. So uh, to take that a step further, this file will alert them to records that were submitted, that were updated by an entity other than the RRE over the last month. 
So REs can opt in during the registration process for Section 111 reporting application. Now, most REs have already um, registered. And so existing REs may opt in or out using the RRE information option on the RRE listing page, okay? So if you are the account manager or the authorized representative, you're gonna need to go to the CMS um, website, the CMS Secure web portal and, and update your preferences on getting this unsolicited response file. The files will be transmitted in the manner in which the original submission was made. The file will cover applied records submitted by the RRE within the last 12 months and will include the following. Any key matching fields, including the last DCN submitted by the RRE. Any current values for unchanged portions of the records in question the most recent beneficiary entitlement and enrollment information, the source of the update, the reason for the update, and the date the record was last changed. So if you wanna see what the full layout will look like, so if you're thinking, all right, I might need to do some tech updates, I might need to look into updating my system to make sure I can get this file, the full layout of this update is in chapter five, which is the technical guide for the user guide. Um, so the other thing that they note in this section is if more than one change is made by another entity to a particular non-group health plan ORM occurrence during a month, only one non-group health plan unsolicited response file detail record will be created. And it will only reflect the most recent change applied. So they go into a section as well on fields, okay? Mm -hmm. And modifier types and value in the modifier name in the description. So, you know, taking this down to like a very practical basis, what they're trying to do here is communicate to RREs why their Section 111 reporting was changed. Okay, and what has been happening up to this point is Section 111 reporting entities have been getting letters um, that sort of tell you that your reporting was changed or someone requested that the ORM not be open or it be terminated or the case settled. But, you know, basically saying your Section 111 reporting does not match the information that we're getting. So there were changes that were being made by the BCRC, there are changes that were being made by analysts, there's changes that could be made by claimants, injured parties, beneficiaries, their attorneys. Um, and this was concerning for a lot of reasons to REs because sometimes the beneficiaries are right, sometimes they're wrong, but from Medicare's perspective, they're always going to try to protect the beneficiary. And because the reporting that gets done impacts the beneficiary's benefits, there is always going to be an incentive from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services as an agency to make sure that the beneficiary has some semblance of control over their own benefits. 
And if they're being denied benefits because, say, an RRE over-reported ICD codes, or they never terminated their ongoing responsibility for medicals, which happens a lot, um, the beneficiaries need to be able to get their benefits reinstated. So this is a step in that direction to include all of the parties in like more of an active role in Section 111 reporting. Um, but I think there's a lot of uncertainty um, regarding this change and probably a lot of questions that need to be asked, but a lot of questions, a lot of people don't even know where to start um, in terms of how to ask them. Would you agree, Bridget? I agree. I agree. Um, and thank you for that that very comprehensive explanation. Um, I think that the the concern here, and I see where CMS is trying to make this transparent, which is a good thing. I think that the concern is that if people are changing data, you know, are the changes correct? And, and how will that impact the RRE's responsibility? How will that impact the beneficiary? Um, and I agree. I think that um, if we could have a little... Um, and I'm sure CMS will probably, as this comes closer, I can't believe we're already in April, but, mm -hmm. as, but as this comes closer, maybe provide some additional guidance on this. Um, and, you know, if there's some parameters on this as far as, you know, who can change what and, and if there's any structure to those changes, I think that would be really welcome. But it, it's definitely um, something a lot of people are talking about and and they're trying to really under understand this impact. So um, any any additional information will be, I think, greatly appreciated with this. So yeah, one of the I think definitely the MSPN, um, the conditional payment and section 111 committee has expressed a lot of interest in um, having a question and answer session with potentially someone over at um, the BCRC EDI department about how this is going to be rolled out. Um, and we'll definitely keep you updated on that uh, if we're able to get something scheduled. But as, as you know, a first step, I think this is also something that um, just on a broader scale is going to need to be communicated well to the beneficiaries as well. Um, if they're able to make these changes, understanding why they're making these changes um, is also important. And, it, you know, it would be really interesting to find out how frequently this is actually happening as well. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. I don't think I don't think we know that at this point. So that's that's a great point. My gut tells me it's not in is a from a percentage basis, it's probably not a high percentage based on the overall claims being reported. Um, and you're probably going to have jurisdictionally jurisdictionally, you're going to have it happen in more like certain states rather than others. Like I could see I could see issues with benefits in lifetime medical states, okay, where they're clearly not still treating for the work injury, but that can never be like, unless you can fit into that narrow five-year termination, you know, ORM is just always open. I could see beneficiaries needing to call and say, 
yeah, I had a work injury 15 years ago or, you know, 10 years ago, but I got in a car accident. Like, so my treatment now is not related to that. And, you know, or whatever, like whatever it is, I hurt myself gardening or I'm just old, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good point too. It, it could depend on jurisdiction, even, even those jurisdictions that are a little tricky, right? Where you can accept for a while and then, and then you can deny at one point, you know, that can confuse things too. So I, I, I definitely agree that, and, and that's great that the uh, section 111 and conditional payment committee is, is working on, on, on getting some additional information. And um, I'm sure uh, we'll be talking about this more as uh, we get closer to July. So, all right. Well, we have come to the end of our podcast. Kira, thank you for setting aside some time with us today to talk about this very important subject. And um, thank you for having me and join the conditional payment 111 committee. It's a great committee. (laughs) It it definitely is. There's so much information on that committee. Um, It is a wonderful committee to be a part of. So thank you for uh, leaving that with Amber. Uh, Kira, you do a great job and we appreciate Uh, it. And um, for our audience, uh, thank you for setting aside some time to listen to our MSPM podcast and Please join us for our next podcast where Rasa Fumagali and Barry Miyagi will delve into a liability case study. So please join us for that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Kira. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.